the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, I think I did this story one time when you were out over the summer. Okay. So let me tell you the story, because I don't know if you're aware of the story of an of a minor league baseball player by the name of Drew Robinson. No, I'm not. Uh, Drew Robinson uh, was in the San Francisco Giants uh, minor league system. Okay. And a good player, like a really good player, had major league aspirations. Uh, but uh, I believe it was last offseason, uh, really battling with depression, really battling with all sorts of mental health issues. Um, Drew Robinson decided to end his own life and mm-hmm. actually shot himself in the head. <gasps> so he gracious. didn't just he didn't just decide and wrestle with it. He actually went uh, went about doing it. Wow! But he lived. And Whoa. so uh, ESPN when when I talked about this a couple months ago on the show, ESPN did a huge story about him because he then uh, recovered. He lost an eye. He recovered and he went back to playing baseball. He actually played baseball again, and he did that this year. Wow. Uh, but he has since retired from the Giants, and he's now working in their front office. But, Aubrey, now what's amazing is Drew Robinson uh, has recognized, not only am I lucky to be alive, but he wants to help others uh, who might be going down this same path, mm. who, are, who are having suicidal thoughts, who are struggling with depression. I want you to hear some of what Drew Robinson has to say. Everything about this story is so improbable. Is there any serious bleeding? So impossible on paper that I'm lucky to be alive. 29-year-old Drew Robinson is using an extraordinary comeback to change a stigma and save lives. This is my first time really talking about it. I'm here to tell anyone that mental health battles and disorders do not define who you are as a person. Your mind is your servant and not your master. Why do you think you survived? Because I'm supposed to help people. This was a huge sign that I'm supposed to help people get through something that they don't think is winnable. I'm meant to be alive. Meant to be alive. So, Aubrey, just a fascinating story. Unbelievable. A that, a, that he even survived. Yes. But B, now using this tragedy and this low, dark moment in his life yeah. to kind of now, it kind of almost recentered his life. And now mm. he's out trying to help other people. There's that, it's an extraordinary example, don't you think? Absolutely extraordinary. As a reminder, this is last day of September. It's National Suicide Prevention That's Awareness right. Month. So this story is really applicable. I mean, it's, you know, powerful all the time, but especially right now, this is powerful. But I do, there is, I mean, this is such a dark thing, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it seems like in situations like these, you you don't move. I don't know. You don't come back from that type of darkness. But the fact that now he's uh, using his story to help others, um, 
who are suicidal or have suicide ideation, I, yeah, there's something quite uh, inspiring, moving, powerful about this that coming from such, such depth. Um, you can see change and transformation and then want to pour that into other people. Yeah. And that's where I want to take this is the it, uh, we want to celebrate Drew Robinson. Right. And if no one has ever Absolutely. seen the, if you've never seen the ESPN story done on him, you could Google it. Jeff Passan did it. It is phenomenal. And ESPN ran it on TV in print, wow. all sorts of different places. Um, but Aubrey, there's a lot of people uh, like you said in this time of pandemic and mm-hmm. all sorts of other things. Uh, mental health issues, especially amongst our teenagers, but yes. also uh, just in general, are a huge deal right now. So let's talk to two different groups of people. The first okay. are those who are struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Those people who are in a really, really dark, dark spot uh, who like hear the Drew Robinson story and are like, I understand where he was at. What, what do we say to people in that spot right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say when you're not alone. And there's no shame in how you're feeling. But I would say this very moment is the moment to reach out to somebody. If you have healthy parents, reach out to a parent. If you have a best friend, reach out to a best friend. You can call the suicide hotline, which we'll say before we end the uh, this hour today. But make a step to reach out to somebody because your life is right. worth it. And also your life is not done. Like God has good plans for you. You mm. matter. You're here on purpose. And so I would hear no shame, reach out immediately and know that there's a future for you that's good and hopeful because God loves you. That's a good word. And now let's talk to a different group of people. And those are people who at some point in their life, uh, whether recently or or not recently, did hit rock bottom, whether it's suicide or drug addiction or gambling, whatever else it might be, right? Like something has happened in their life. This is kind of an inspiration for us to say, God can use your brokenness uh, to help other people who are who are going down that path, like you are uniquely situated to help other people, and there's probably people out there who need to hear that right now, right? Like, use your woundedness, use your brokenness as you're right. in a better spot now to help other people. Right. What does what does Paul say? I'm going to put you on the spot as a pastor. Brian. Paul says, and I think it's First Corinthians. It might be Second Corinthians. About the way that we've been comforted by God is the way that we are meant to comfort others. Like this is Mm. such a beautiful thing that the Lord does in our lives when we've walked through really the pit, the valley, the difficulty. But God has rescued us from that. That is an obvious, obvious. you almost want to say a sign that God Mm -hmm. wants to use you to help other people in that same pit, in that same valley, or at least in one that's parallel. And then, I mean, I think the beautiful thing is then your, your tragedy, your hardship isn't wasted because Mm. now you know what it's like and you can pour out with empathy to people walking in the same way, but give them inspiration that like, there's hope for you. There's a future for you. There's something good for you. I, it's obviously a miracle that Drew mm-hmm. Robinson's life was saved. Yes. And there are lots of lives that aren't saved. And so we want to be mindful of that. But I think because it's so miraculous, I almost feel like he has no choice. Like he has <laughs> yes. to move out of that to help other people. I just want to mention the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, Brian. Yeah, please. It is 800-273-8255. If you have any thoughts, inklings, worries, uh, it, it, any just little bits of thoughts about suicide, call that number 800-273-8255-247 hotline. It's anonymous. They will help you out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the call to remember is, 
Uh, and this can be hard to hear when you're at rock bottom, but but the beauty of scripture is uh, God promises to be near to the brokenhearted. Yeah, he promises right. to be with us at our low points. He doesn't go waiting at the top of the mountain going, hey, when you reach me, I'll be here for you. And then we are called as as fellow believers in Christ to go into the pits with people mm-hmm. and to be to be That's the it. ones there. And and some of you who have gone through particular things, I'll never forget knowing a guy in my last church, he had a history. Uh, his story was one of, of just deep drug addiction mm. that he had been healed from and had, you know, decades of sobriety. But there was nobody better at reaching people who had drug issues than yeah. this guy. Amazing. Not us pastors, not anybody. It was this guy. And, and God can use the broken parts of your story to help people going through those same things. So I wanted to... Uh, update that story of Drew Robinson. It is uh, it is really an inspirational one. Well, coming up next, Josh Larson. We love talking to Josh. He wrote an interesting article at Think Christian called Why Seinfeld is the Worst Sitcom of All Time. Seinfeld, one of my favorite sitcoms. So we're going to talk <laughs> about that. Also want to talk to him about that new movie about Tammy Faye Baker called The Eyes of Tammy Faye. We're going to do that next with Josh Larson from Think Christian here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey, we love every guest that we get to talk to. And, you know, everyone adds to the show. But we certainly enjoy our time when we get to spend it with the editor and film critic at a great website called Think Christian. Also the host and the producer of the Think Christian podcast. His name is Josh Larson. Josh, how are you doing today, bud? Doing really well. Thank you so much for the invite back. Yeah, that was that was fun last time. So I'm glad we could do it again. I am. And you got me with a title of one of your most recent articles and podcasts. Uh, I am a uh, if I did a, a top five, three or five of my favorite sitcoms of all time. Seinfeld <laughs> is going to sit there with The Office and some others. But Seinfeld and The Office are going to be there. And you wrote an article called and let me just read the title and let you explain it. Why Seinfeld is the worst sitcom <laughs> of all time. Josh, tell us about that article, what you're getting at there. Yeah, and I'll say right up top, I admit in the first paragraph that that headline is clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> but I also say, you know, theologically, I I think there's something to that because anyone who has watched Seinfeld, which is almost everyone, not right. everybody, but almost everyone, knows that these are really despicable characters, Jerry <laughs> yeah. George, Elaine, and Kramer. And uh, one of the debates we had as a family when we revisited the series in the early months of quarantine, my two daughters, first time they had ever seen it, was, man, which one of these people is the worst? Because they're all so <laughs> selfish and narcissistic. So Everything they do is to kind of keep this little bubble they've created secure, right? And they will never, they will, they couldn't even conceive of being a good Samaritan. (laughs) Let's put it that way. (laughs) And so that's what the article was really about is I finally confronted, I had to doing that recent revisit. I'm going to say, Brian, it's my favorite sitcom of all time. I watched it from day one, uh, lived with it, have watched it many times. And in this revisit, I realized, yes, it's my favorite. And I also realized I need to do some deep thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is it about this show? Uh, I should be more mature than this, right? At this point, (laughs) as an adult, um, as hopefully a more mature Christian, um, I shouldn't be responding so well to these awful people. And that's, you know, that's kind of what I went on to, to interrogate for myself in the piece. 
I still, I mean, okay, side note, I cannot get, uh, believe it or not, George is in at home. Like, that, that has been stuck in my head for like two decades. It is an earworm that will not so leave. I, sure. Anyway, so just a side note. But okay, so Josh, so you've done some exploration. Why do we love these characters? Because I think you're right. There is something, it's like watching a bad car accident. Like, we want to consume these bad Samaritans. Why? Yeah, that's a really good that's a really good analogy. And for me, what I had to admit and and why I kind of did confess that the headline was um, clickbait is because for me, it's been a confessional experience to realize that I'm way closer to these four than I'd like to admit. So, yes, I laugh at them um, and, you know, disapprove of them. But really, if I were left to my own devices, if I didn't have any filters, um I don't know if I'd be George. I don't know if I'm going to go that far. <laughs> definitely there's some Elaine in me. I, I would prefer to be confrontational, but I kind of suppress that. Um, I would rather gossip about people. I would rather give people um, nicknames based on their behavior or sometimes even appearances. That's my instinct. That's what I have to admit. And in a way, watching the show in a bad way, it's it's darkly aspirational is I'm yeah. living through them vicariously. Right. But I also think you know, it can be confessional and it can force me to to admit those tendencies to myself and to remind me uh, that's not how we're called to live. It's the mm. parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the the calling to put others first, put our own selfish tendencies, even even the minor irritations. Second, that's how we're called to live as Christians. God first, then others, then ourselves. And so I do think watching the show, maybe I'm just coming up with an excuse because I'm going to watch it again <laughs> when it's on Netflix in October. Yeah. Um, I do think it can work as sort of this um, act of confession as well. That's fascinating. Yeah. That, I mean, you talk about in here, the two part season finale where they literally get jailed under the Good Samaritan law for yes. their indifference to people. Uh, do you think Seinfeld, like I said, Seinfeld and The Office are one and two for me in either order. We actually had you on a long time ago to talk about The Office, too. That's why you're our favorite guest. That's right. Uh, uh, do you think Seinfeld could come out now and in our current culture? How do you think it would land now versus, you know, coming out in the early to mid 90s? What a great question. Uh, my instinct is no, just because everyone is so tense right now yeah. that uh, I don't know if there would be the space for recognizing the nuance that was actually at work right. on Seinfeld. And that's a different issue, I think, than to say, you know, some of the elements of the show have not worn well. I think, you know, Jerry's treatment of women, this, this mm -hmm. litany of girlfriends he had right. in particular, they were partly criticizing him for that. But at the same time, you were supposed to kind of admire how Jerry right. somehow had all of these, you know, beautiful dates. And I think that is something that wouldn't hold up well today for good reasons. But I also think, you know, we are very quick to condemn these days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that goes for all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of perspectives. It's our default posture, I feel. And I kind of think that if a show like Seinfeld appeared where the four characters were so obviously despicable and condemnable, mm -hmm. there might not be a space for it. And, and maybe that's why shows like The Office found their following is because they have similarly selfish characters, mm -hmm. but they also have characters with heart to them or it's, right. they're willing to explore characters who have that side. Yeah. Um, think of something like Parks and Recreation, too. Another great sitcom. Mm hmm. 
owes a lot to Seinfeld, but also is very distinct in that there is a a seeking of goodness in that right. sitcom as well. Right. Mm. Oh, I love Parks and Rec. That's another good one. We'll have to have you on to do a Parks and Rec <laughs> conversation at some point. All right. So speaking of people we condemn, speaking of good Samaritans and bad Samaritans, we also wanted to talk to you about the new movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And I don't know what my question really is, Josh, but talk to us. Yeah, well, we actually paired that movie um, with Seinfeld on our podcast. We called that show Bad Samaritans. And, you know, obviously uh, the Seinfeld characters were our main focus. But there is this question that the movie, The Eyes of Tam- Tammy Faye, poses, actually. It's a it's a drama, a melodrama. Jessica Chastain plays Tammy Faye Baker. And sort of the theory of the film, and definitely in her performance, is let's reconsider Tammy Faye Baker. Mm -hmm. Um, Look at maybe who she was. This is all based on a 2000 or 2002 documentary of the same name, by the way, Mm -hmm. that tried to rehabilitate her image a bit and explore perhaps the genuine spiritual impulses that she brought to her ministry, um, how she got caught up in the scandals of Jim Baker's ministry. um, And maybe have us ask, um, was she more caught up in this than responsible for it? Now, Mm. people who have seen the film might debate if it goes too far. And so that's kind of the question we asked. Is she, you know, is she a good Samaritan who got caught up in something or does she have some bad Samaritan qualities too? Um, So, yeah, it's a really interesting film. Doesn't explore some of those spiritual questions as deeply as I thought it would. Mm. But Chastain's performance is fantastic one of my favorite of the year so far wow um in just this pure commitment to um giving some respect to a woman who you know perhaps for some reasons has not some just good reasons has not gotten a lot of respect i only remember her from being portrayed on saturday night live when exactly I was a kid, you know so so it's kind of giving us a little more a, a little deeper look that's right that's right again you can find that podcast the think christian podcast Wherever it is, you get your podcasts. You can also find Josh over at thinkchristian.net. We've asked you about this before, but like, tell me about your life. Like, how much time are you spending watching TV, watching movies? I know you have a family, but like, when it's your job to watch these things, what is kind of your daily rhythm? Yeah, well, well, it helps with the family to be able to say it's my job. <laughs> but I, I still have to be careful with that, right? Yeah, um, yeah, it it yeah. can also make those lines blend, um, and it's something I have to be aware of. Um, it's a rhythm that's, you know, it's not the same. Uh, every day is different, which I, yeah. I kind of like. I am a creature of habit and something of a control freak, but there's also something fun about You know, this week I spent Tuesday afternoon, um, had to kind of set that aside to go see the new James Bond film. Oh, Um, man. Yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to complain about that. I won't tell you what I thought either at this point, but (laughs) but that was that was really good. And, you know, think Christian, we've kind of expanded what we um, have done in recent years. So we used to be pretty much just the blog writing about faith and pop culture, but we added the podcast. Um, we're extending into some video now. So my days are really, um, a, a jumble of mm-hmm. talking to folks like you on radio and on podcasts, um, recording some video content, editing video. The Seinfeld article was the first one I've written in a couple of months, which is Mm. kind of sad, but I think speaks to how we are um, in a lot of different areas at the moment as well. So I do like that, but we're we're very busy over here, but because, you know, it's we all enjoy doing it. So so that makes it makes it easier. 
And I love, Josh, that you have other voices that contribute to the blog over at Think Christian. And and in fact, you and I off the air were talking about Shang-Chi. I've seen it twice, the new Marvel movie. You've seen it once. You may go see it again this weekend. There was a beautiful article at Think Christian called Shang-Chi and the Mothering Heart of God. I can't have you here without talking Marvel. So talk to <laughs> us about that article and the movie itself. Yeah, happy to talk about this one because I think it's one of Marvel's. I think I have it in my top five. This Agree. was, yeah. Uh, oh, this was such a surprise to me. Just didn't know much about this character and hadn't been following the development of the film all that closely. But I enjoyed it, and so did Tasha Jun, who wrote this piece, the one you mentioned over at ThinkChristian.net. And yeah, Aubrey, I'd love to hear what you kind of think of this this take she had. She looked at the movie and recognized that, you know, Shang-Chi, the title character, is is a younger man. So obviously the story turns on him and it's basically a struggle he has with his father, played by um, acting legend Tony Leung. Just fantastic in the film. So it's really about the relationship between those two. But around them are these significant women in the story, a couple of uh, a mother, Shang-Chi's mother, as a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. um, and his aunt as well. They have really crucial roles. So in her article, Tasha Jun wrote about how, you know, even though the men kind of have these rings of power in the title, it's um, this the wisdom of the women that turns the men um, to where they should be and the direction they should go. And she also writes about some of the martial arts action in the film, which exemplifies this. It's Mm -hmm. not all about power um, or overpowering people. Uh, There's a wonderful motif in the movie of uh, opening hands. Yes. So during one fight, um, uh, Shang-Chi's father, the Tony Leung character, is is punching and um, he is actually fighting against his soon-to-be wife here. This is when they first meet, played by Fala Chen. She opens his hands and kind of just turns him away from that sort of interaction. So mm-hmm. I love how Tasha teased that out of the movie. I, does does any of that resonate with you, having seen it twice, Aubrey? So that's that's actually the, the second scene that's sort of a mirror to that scene later when Shang-Chi's aunt, who's portrayed by Michelle, uh, do you say Yo? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name. I believe correctly. that's right. Yeah, Michelle. Okay. Yo. So she another Shang-Chi, legend. Yes, another <laughs> legend. She's amazing. But the Shang-Chi character is fighting her with those fists closed. And it's just gentle moment where she reaches over and opens his hands and reminds him, remember who you are. Mm. And mm. it is such an outstanding moment in the movie because it mirrors his own mom. But because I do think there is something about identity the heart of God, the heart of a mother that's in that um, fight scene that gives Shang-Chi the strength to really uh, own who he actually is and not try to be something that he isn't, that his father tried to make him. And I don't want to spoil the movie for our listeners, but that that scene has stood out to me even you know weeks later as I've thought back on the movie. Yeah, I'd agree. It, it's one of the highlights in the film. And yeah, as you said, Tasha connects this theme to, you know, the images of God in the Bible as a protective mother. Um, mm, you know, that, that we think of and think of Jesus comparing himself to a mother hen, right? Mm-hmm. Gathering her children, the comfort of her wings and how the movie kind of reflects that um, by by giving uh, moments to the women characters in the film that are doing something similar for Shang-Chi. Wow, that's good. I, I let you guys just keep going on Marvel, but let me get us back. <laughs> let me go to the eyes of Tammy Faye one more time because sure. uh, 
I wonder, is it at all an important movie for the church, Josh? Is there something that we need to be learning or is it just more uh, historical for you? What, what do you say uh, as we think people out there, you know, should they go see it and what should we be learning from it? Yeah, you know, I think it was more of that. I think what I mentioned, how there are some gaps, it doesn't take the time to uh, fully explore um, that. Um, that's the sort of thing I was talking about mm-hmm. is um, especially, you know, Abby Chessie talked to me on the Think Christian podcast about this, and she pointed out how there's a whole thread they could have explored about what it's like to be the quote unquote pastor's wife hmm. and how in this scenario it was amplified because they were on television, you know, with, with this huge audience. And I think the film touches on that, uh, but but doesn't go as deeply as perhaps it could. Um, it skates a little lightly over the depth of Jim Baker's scandals and, mm. um, you know, the really the, the the sordidness, if you look more into that than what the movie covers. Again, maybe out of the scope of what the film wanted to do. But I think to your question, Brian, um, you know, it is a movie that is mostly interested in reclaiming what we think about Tammy Faye Baker mm. and less interested in maybe... Um, the church's role or even her particular faith, because a question Mm. I still have, the movie presents her as a young girl at the beginning and, and um, not being allowed into church for complicated reasons. But then she goes and feels the spirit and everyone welcomes her because of Mm. that. And that Mm. kind of gets her, she's accepted then, but her mother also asks her if it was a performance. And so there's this question throughout the film of what is the nature of her faith? Is she still performing later or does she have this genuine love for others reflecting the love God has for her that she wants to share with others? So that's a tension. The movie, you know, kind of speaks to your question, Brian. I think if it explored that more deeply would make it maybe a little more fruitful for people of faith who are watching it. That's awesome. And Josh, as we let you go, this is always a great amount of fun for us. Tell us really briefly about the new Think Christian Movie Club series that is coming. How can people connect? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. This is a new thing. I mentioned we're getting into video that um, we are starting. And basically, we're going to look at four of the films of the Coen brothers through this theological framework. I'm posing a a question. Would you describe these films as Old Testament or New Testament? And uh, (laughs) we're looking at Fargo, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, uh, no Country for Old Men and True Grit. We'll be doing this over the next couple of months. And I'm making, basically making a video essay for each film okay. where I'll take people through the movie and make my own claim. And then we're going to have an online discussion where people who join the club can gather uh, Q&A. We'll talk about the movie. We'll kind of debate this Old Testament, New Testament framework and just have some fun. I, I can't wait to get a chance to talk to and meet some of the people who follow Think Christian and read and listen to us. So I'm excited about that. If anyone is interested, you can join by going to thinkchristian.net slash movie club. Sign up there with your email and we'll get you all the details. Awesome. Again, Josh Larson is the editor and film critic at Think Christian. You can also see the host and producer of the Think Christian podcast. A lot of the things we've just been talking about, uh, if you want to hear more, like their latest episode, Bad Samaritans, about Seinfeld and the eyes of Tammy Faye. You can also find them LarsonOnFilm.com and on Twitter at LarsonOnFilm. Josh, this is always fun, man. Thanks for taking the time with us today. Thank you both. I enjoyed it. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And as always, we're so grateful that you're with us here today. Brian, I would say, maybe I don't want to speak for you, but you and I consider ourselves political moderates. Mm -hmm. Would you agree, disagree? Yeah, I've been a Republican my entire life. Yeah. But but increasingly, as I talk to other people uh, who who identifies Republicans, I feel much more moderate than than most of the ones I talk to. So, yeah, I, w- I would go with that. I think that's fair. Sometimes I think people call themselves moderates because it's it sounds very reasonable. Uh-huh, <laughs> you know what uh-huh. I mean? But I, I, I actually think we we probably maybe not in every category because you and I are both very pro-life and there's other things we do probably lean more uh, conservative. But generally, I would say I run the moderate political spectrum. Right, right. Interestingly, there's a group of moderate suburban voters, which uh, you and I sort of fit into that category, who are Republicans, but who voted for Biden because they wanted Trump out of the House. And NPR put a focus group together of these suburban political moderates to talk about how they feel about President Biden eight months into his presidency. They had a really interesting um, audio as they interviewed them. I wanted to play a little bit of that for our mm-hmm. listeners and then have us respond what we think. So here we go. Let's listen to these suburban political moderates talking about Biden. Moderate suburban Republicans are among those who cast ballots for President Biden last year. So eight months in, how do these voters view the president? The U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the rush of migrants, the Texas border and the Delta variant surge have all contributed to Biden's approval ratings, hovering around 46 percent. So what do those voters who swung from Trump in 2016 to Biden in 2020 think? NPR's Don Gagne has been sitting in on some focus groups. The focus groups follow what polls are showing about Biden, that his support has slipped. Among the participants, there are worries about the economy and the size of Democratic spending plans. But it's the withdrawal from Afghanistan that really seems to trouble people undermining Biden's image as both competent and an expert in foreign policy. There's at least one comparison to the Vietnam War. What happened in Afghanistan to me was the worst thing that's happened since Saigon. I think that was a total mess. That's Paul. He's in central Pennsylvania. We agreed to identify the focus group participants by first name only. He didn't have to stick to the time frame Trump set up, but he he kept sticking to it and sticking to it. And a lot of people died and a lot of people were left behind. So I think that was squarely on him. One thing we can't know at this point is how long Afghanistan will be a top-tier issue with voters. The participants, all vaccinated, mostly give Biden solid marks for his handling of the coronavirus, all say he's been far better than Trump on that score. Despite being Biden voters, overwhelmingly, they still consider themselves Republicans. Okay, so essentially, Brian... Uh, You know, it's kind of what you and I have said on the show. They're still glad Trump is not the president. They're still glad they voted for Biden. They're still Republicans. They are not happy about Afghanistan. They're worried about COVID. Um, There's some disappointment in Biden. Yeah, I think it's fair. Uh, And and I didn't vote for President Biden, but I I I I was glad that, um, you know, here's what I want, Aubrey. This seems like an opportunity right now for the Republican Party, of which I consider myself to be part of. Like I said, I've always voted Republican uh, if I have voted. 
And this is an opportunity, in my opinion, to go, okay, we could pull these people back in like us because people are going looking at Biden going, that's a train wreck, right? We're seeing yeah. we're seeing uh, ultra liberal abortion b- bills yeah. that are that are terrifying. Afghanistan, you see spending all of this stuff. It's an opportunity. I hope here's my hope. And you and I don't talk a lot of politics, so it's Mm-mm. kind of fun. Uh, my hope and desire is for the Republican Party to figure out a way to go. We are not going to put some ultra conservative, ultra yeah. uh, kind of right wing guy or woman out there, but that we're going to be a little bit more moderate um, in I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think our politics on both sides of the aisle right now run to the polls and the absolutely, extremes. absolutely. And we see that, right? Like it's kind of, um, yeah. I have I have no love for the Biden administration right now <laughs> and what's yeah. going on, and I had very little love for the Trump administration. Right. And you kind of feel like this political. Um, when you feel you're, like you're more in the middle, you kind of feel like this kind of political nomad going, I don't know. Yes. I don't know what to do. Like, I want to vote for people that I'm excited about. Yes. And I feel like it's been a while since on a national level where I've looked at people and gone, I'm excited about him. I'm excited about her. You get people like that on the local level, but, but on the, on the national level, I, I've, I, I struggle with, I guess I'm also a little bit more. Uh, Pollyanna about this. The people mm-hmm. who are like, well, I hold my nose and just vote for this one. I don't, do, I can't do, like, I, that bothers me. Like, I want to, mm-hmm. I want to, I want a candidate who inspires me and like, yeah. I can believe in that person and yeah. this. And so, yeah, I think the Biden administration, you look at the numbers right now, uh, his, uh, his approval ratings are tanking. They're yeah, going they down. Are. Yep, and, they are. and I wish the Republican party would say, this is our opportunity to find somebody that that kind of all aspects of the Republican Party can get behind, I just fear that 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 ship has sailed. Like that's uh, not yeah, where we I, I can agree. be anymore. I think my fear is that the Republican Party now is going to go almost like extra Trumpy, oh, yeah. and I would be so much more pleased if they brought a moderate to the table and a not a, like I don't want to say an anti-Trump, but maybe no. an anti-Trump type type. Okay person to the table because I, that would make me feel better about the Republican Party. But, I, you know, I unfortunately, I agree with you, Brian, that the, the candidates we're seeing are so polemic that you find yourself, at least someone like me, a little bit of like loss. Like, yeah. I don't know where I am politically. I don't I see things on this side. I like I see things on this side. I like I see things on this side. I hate I see things on this side. I hate right. and I really am finding myself not being able to get behind wholeheartedly one party. And I like you, Brian, I, I don't want to just hold like vote for the lesser of two evils. That right, doesn't right. feel like a, an, a good opportunity. Yeah. And I know some people say, hey, vote not for the person, but for the policy. But even that doesn't work. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, that that has never proved effective. And so I, I think it will be interesting over time, especially, you know, as the next election is around the corner here in a little bit. Who comes to the forefront? Where the nation swings? Yes. I mean, it you know, it's it's it feels like a confusing pot of chaos to me and right now. It feels broken too. Like, That's it, that. like I read an article the other day about actually how little virtually no legislation getting through our you know our our US Congress because mm. they're so polarized and it's so performative. And they've just turned into actors, like just trying yeah. for the next sound bite and stuff. And you're like, I just 
again, it sounds Pollyanna. I want a government that actually works and that actually mm. does stuff and mm. can compromise and can work across, you know, but I understand that that has been a long time since that's existed, but uh, yeah, I'm hopeful, you know, but it also reminds us again, Aubrey, that we as the church, this is not where our hope actually That's it, lies. Brian. Yep. Uh, it's a reminder because you read articles you're like, like this. And again, it reminds you like, I'm not excited about what's potentially going to be coming the, down the pike next time for either yeah. side. And I'm not, and you just have to go, okay, how do I process that? How do I live as a, as a good citizen, but also yes. how do I put my focus on, on the kingdom of God and, and where it. my focus is actually supposed to be? Yeah. That's such a good word for all of us that our hope is not in a political candidate or a political party, but in Jesus Christ who is on the throne and none of this surprises him. That's what I keep reminding. God is not surprised any of this so we can continue to trust him and pray for wisdom Mm -hmm. for our for our national leaders and for ourselves as we think about voting we'll stick around we're going to talk about the very intriguing marriage of will smith and jada pinkett smith what we can learn from them and really what can we learn from their marital mistakes you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad that you're with us this Thursday evening. Brian, I have a massive question for you. Okay, I'm Are you ready for it? This is like a life question. You should be worried. Okay. All right. What is the highest definition of love? Oh, that's a good one. In my marriage, it is when I bring my wife a uh, a Portillo's chocolate cake, but I think it's <laughs> higher than that. I think it goes higher than that. <laughs> that's a pretty good one. You know, as Christ followers, we we look to Jesus as the yes. highest definition of love. That's right. He is the embodiment of love. When we talk about love, self-sacrificial love, when we talk about what actual, uh, you know, the Bible says God is love. And mm-hmm. so- uh, if God is the definition of love embodied in Jesus, I think then when we go into the Gospels and we look at who is Jesus, what did he do, how did he interact, who was he, I think there we understand not only how much we are loved, but then uh, how even imperfectly we're to love other people. That's one of those answers that is like the quote unquote Sunday school Jesus answer, but you're right. I mean, yeah. that that is Jesus is the highest definition of love. And you're exactly right. We mm-hmm. we see how God loves us through Christ, through his sacrifice, and also how we ought to love one another. Well, I ask you that question because Will Smith and Jada Pickett Smith were recently quoted talking about what they believe the highest definition of love is. I wanted to play Um, audio of a story about them describing marriage and their version of the highest definition of love. Let's go ahead and listen to that. Will Smith spoke to GQ for their October issue and revealed that despite Jada's infamous July 2020 Red Table Talk fiasco with August Alsina, she wasn't the only one doing some exploring. The Fresh Prince star revealed that he also seemingly got entangled and that they both agreed that marriage, quote, can't be a prison. Will also shared that he and Jada give each other trust and freedom. And throughout the years, that has been the highest definition of love. Okay. So that's a little bit different. Rather than (laughs) (laughs) self-sacrifice, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith believe that uh, the highest definition of love is giving one another freedom. And for them, that means having an open marriage where they're allowed to have, quote unquote, entanglements with other people. Now, 
every red flag that I could possibly have in me goes off hearing that because that to me is the opposite of love. Yeah, this it's is the crazy. the opposite of commitment. It's the opposite of self-sacrifice. And yet they are sort of framing themselves as relational perfection. They've achieved it. They found it. <laughs> Brian, I mean, okay. If you weren't a Christian, what would you think about this? And then two, as a Christian, what do you think about this? I think even if I wasn't a Christian, I would just say this is just a bunch of uh, gobbledygook. People who think that they're <laughs> so much smarter and like yeah. there's nothing even about their description that is actual marriage. Like, you know what totally. I mean? Totally. Like, yeah. And I'm not even saying just Christian marriage. I – uh, I have a lot of married non-Christian friends who would read this and go, these people. Like, that's right. what it is. It's just right. an eye roll of celebrities going, I think I'm yes. smarter than you going. Yes. You're going, no, this is uh, this is uh, narcissism at its yes. highest degree. This is just uh, like I'm smarter than than thousands upon thousands right. of years of, of general thought. Like, it's right. just. Like you, you, I, I, you and I were talking about this story the other day, and I'll, I'll take it from a Christian view too. Like, there is nothing about what they're describing here. Let's just be more blunt about it. Okay. An open, an open marriage is not a marriage. There you go. There an you open go. Marriage, not marriage is not a marriage. It's you like, might as well get out. Dating, right? Like you're dating around. Yeah, it's not even like it's like uh, it's like high school. You know what yeah. I mean? But but it's. Open date, open marriage is in it is antithetical. It is an oxymoron. It's an right? oxymoron. It there is, you go. Yeah. And they've been doing this. If you read the Will Smith yeah. and Jada Pinkett Smith, it, it, first of all, okay, I'm going to get really judgy here. It sounds like the worst <laughs> relationship ever to be a part of. Not I, not oh, relational perfection. It's terrible. That terrible. sounds like a prison. I mean, I feel like that sounds like a prison. It's just weird. And here's the deal. Uh, albeit for me to judge other people's children's, but their kids are showing some of the effects of yeah. uh, of the way that this has been played out. So no, if you read this at all and you're going, man, that does look like relational perfection. I, I think you got to ask yourself some really hard questions. Like, and just ask yourself this, if you're married and you went home and said to your, your spouse, Hey, I feel like this is the move we should make. <laughs> How are they going to respond? I can tell you what, if my wife said that, I'd be like, nope, I got some other ideas. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We are, we're going to go to marriage counseling before we, before we do this. I, you know, it, it is, it's so twisted. It's so, they're so deceived in my mind. And I know I'm sounding judgmental too, but this is not freedom. This is hell on earth. And yes. it reminds me of Romans 1 when Paul talks about how God abandons people over to their shameful desires. Like, I feel like that's it. Like, this is the most base desire. Yeah, I want to sleep with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to. And the fruit of that is going to be a destructive marriage generationally. Like, I, like you brought up their kids. Their kids, kids. Their kids, kids, kids. Like, generationally, this is not going to be... Uh, bear yes. beautiful fruit. It's just not. And I think the reality is too, like, even if you're not a Christian, don't we all look at couples who've been married faithfully to one yes. each other for 30, 40, 50, 60 years? We see them holding hands in the park or we read stories about them in the news. And all of us are inspired at the, the beautiful sacrifice that two people have committed to one another yes. for the lifetime. And you see the reward in their marriage, like their best friends, treasures untold in their relationship because they've made the choice to love 
each other and only each other. That's right. For the long haul, it glorifies God, but it's also like a beautiful, beautiful gift. Yes. And here's, I think you make a wonderful point. If you're married and you're, or thinking of getting married and you look out over the horizon of your future, like what is um, more desirable for you? Is it this, uh, this description of an open marriage with relational perfection, whatever that means. Right. And we're just kind of in and out. We want each other to have freedom. Like, is that, does that sound good? Or like you said, does it looking into the eyes of your spouse after 50, 60 mm. years going, not everything was easy. We had some really hard times, but man, it's beautiful. And I, and I'm like knit together with you. Like that's the scripture. Yes. That's the picture. Yes. And, and like, I don't under, I don't even know anybody to whom what they're saying is like, uh, even desirable. Like right. I read their stuff and I'm like, who would ever want to right. be a part of that? That's just going to breed in me jealousy. It's going to breed in me. Um, like, uh, just all sorts of bad feeling. I don't know why they're even in it. It's just crazy. And, and people be like, right. why are you judging them? Let them be them because they keep talking about it. They keep talking about it. And I do think whether or not people agree with them, they are influencing a lot of yes. folks. Like I've seen them be interviewed by people and some of the reporters will even be like, cause I want to talk to my spouse about this too. I think this is an awesome idea. And they really are. That's why we're talking about, sure. They can live their own lives and do whatever they want. But they are influencing other people and they're going very public with this. And so we're allowed to respond publicly to it. That's right. That's um, right. I, you know, I, anyway, I, we can sit here and continue to criticize them. But I think we're criticizing them because they're not right. Yes. And at the end of the day, the grass is green where you water it. And so ultimately, they're going to fall out of love with one another. I think they have fallen out. If you've yeah. seen enough of yeah. their articles and stuff, yeah. I think actually that's already happened. But yeah. Uh, you know, I've never anyway. Met him, but. <laughs> right. All right. All right. Well, we'll have to talk about this again in the future. But if you're married, stay faithful to your spouse for the mm -hmm. long haul. Mm -hmm. You will be blessed for it. Your spouse will be blessed for it. If you're thinking about marriage, remember what Brian said. This is a commitment to Christ and to your spouse. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Be sure to come back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.